0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: If I go wear my mom's uh, sandals or touch her earring or put on lipstick, you know, my uncles they would and even uh, my uncles and cousins who say like don't be a girl, that's cool stuff. The, like like the, they'll get into the hygiene.
2: A high number of LGBTQI people have no contact with their families for some for years and sometimes Never again. Um, they have to build new lives for themselves. And that level of pain means that you're not only dealing with psychosocial issues and, and needing support for that, but you're also going to miss out on lots of your school.
0: Believe in us, yeah. believe in you. Uh, remember that we come from a lineage of
3: um, queer, indigenous ancestors whose stories and whose love and whose lives have enabled us to be who we are today. If you identify as lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual, queer, or intersex in the Pacific today, by law, you have fewer freedoms than someone who is straight. Only eight out of 14 states in the Oceania region have decriminalized same-sex acts. That's because in many socially conservative Pacific countries, Christianity reigns supreme and this continues to shape laws and policies that affect people's lives. As a result, many people are subjected to homophobia, discrimination, and persecution. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk about being sex and gender diverse in the Pacific. was the first Pacific country to protect the rights of gender-diverse people. That happened in 2013 after the old constitution was scrapped and a new one was created. It prohibited discrimination against people on the basis of their sexual orientation, gender identity and expression. According to the United Nations... LGBTQI people experience some of the highest levels of violence, marginalization, and discrimination simply because of who they love and how they live their lives. So just how difficult can it be to come out in the Pacific and live an authentic life? The Hawaiian-based DJ Manavai Alefosio was lucky She was raised in a supportive and inclusive Samoan family that made her feel safe and accepted. But she acknowledges not everyone has that.
4: It's important for family and community to accept your sexuality and gender because it's just one way to affirm your existence. You know, we don't grow up learning to affirm ourselves and family and community really act as that foundation to truly see and accept who you are. But I was blessed to be raised by a Fafafingi uncle. My uncle Yangi raised us alongside my parents. And as a child, watching him bring his boyfriend over and our family not really treating him any different. At least not that I know of. <laughs> that really gave me the confidence to just step into my own rainbow-licious self and... You know, I recognize that to be a privilege that not all families have. And it's been a beautiful experience for my younger gay cousins to just come out to me. But I'd also like to end this on the note of if your family or community isn't supportive, you can choose your family. You can hit up your local LGBT organization, confide in a trustworthy school counselor to connect you with the right resources, utilize the internet if you can. But just never forget that you can't make a rainbow without light. So never let anyone try to dim yours or block your shine.
3: What a beautiful piece of advice from Manavai Ala Sophia from Hawaii. About 7,500 kilometers east of Hawaii lies Palau. That's where Shah Mere Ongelungel was raised. She now lives in the United States.
0: I identify as queer or pansexual and being able to embrace my identity fully being out and living genuinely and authentically as myself has been one of the greatest blessings. It's meant being able to draw from the different facets of my identity and life and use that information to inform my work, both in my art and my activism. It's meant the freedom of knowing that whatever may happen, my choices were mine and came from a genuine place and were made with intentionality. And while it's a very personal and often difficult decision to make, I would make this choice time and time again Because life is short, because I owe it to those who came before me to be my authentic self. And because the narrative of shame that's placed on our sexualities is not from my foremothers, but from the colonial
2: mindsets that sought to oppress them.
3: Palawan Shah Mare is a powerhouse and a force for good.
2: This is Sisters Let's Talk
3: with Hilda Wayne. For many movements today, the path to this point was formed by trailblazing for mothers. Fijian activist Noelin Nambuilo was one of those women. A staunch voice for the LGBTQI community and proud lesbian, Noelin has been passionately advocating for gender equality for decades. But she says there's
2: still so much work to be done. For lesbian women and for LGBTQI people in general around the Pacific, it depends on where you're living right now. So there are still six jurisdictions in which it's completely criminalized. Basically, there are eight um, of the island states and territories that have decriminalized, but still Kiribati, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu and Cook Islands they're still facing criminalization. So that means you can't even be publicly who you are. And that means that it's very, very hard to access the full range of human rights, whether you're talking about water and sanitation, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about health. The minute that you might go to a doctor or, uh, or someone to help you, you run the risk of outing yourself. And there is a possibility, even though in many countries these laws haven't been um, maybe put into place, but the fact that they still exist means that there are many, many lesbians, bisexual, transgender, intersex and other people in the Pacific specific don't access the the rights that um, they're entitled to, both under the law, but under international human rights law as well. So yes, in every aspect of our lives, Hilda, even for those of us, for instance, who might be protected under the law here in Fiji, um, there's no drawdown. So there are still issues around things like adoption of children. There are still issues of homophobic bullying in schools and then no justification, you know, no, no kind of support for our rights, even though they're held in, in the Constitution. Long way still to go. Mm-hmm. But we've made some progress. Yes. From the challenges that you've mentioned, is that some things that prevent um, young LGBTQI women from coming out as well? Oh, absolutely. Like the ability to come out is dependent on many things. One, it's dependent on whether or not you can support yourself at the time. So that's also around issues such as age, for instance. What we found in our research is at least 35% of young people had already left their biological families by the time they were 18. That's an extraordinary statistic because it means that the vulnerability is, is heightened. If you're not able to be in an environment where people know you and hopefully care about you then you're basically living in a lot of a lot of lgbtqi people are very transient because they have to move around either family members who will allow them to stay with them or they might then end up on the streets and often that kind of life is one where you're trying to find peace you know you're trying to find somewhere where you can find people who love you and that's why in the community we talk a lot about created family not just biological family but created family because a a high number of LGBTQI people have no contact with their families for some for years and sometimes never again. Um, they have to build new lives for themselves, and that level of pain means that you're not only dealing with the psychosocial issues and, and needing support for that, but you're also going to miss out on lots of your school. If you leave school early, and often parents will say, okay, if you're going to be in that partnership, we're not going to help you with your tertiary education. Mm. Um, And so if you're from a a high-poverty family, you already have very low levels of economic resources. So off you go trying to find a place where one, you're physically safe, but two, that you can feel accepted, and three, that you can access the things that anybody who is from what we call a heteronormative background, who's straight, can can hopefully presume is, is part of their lives. Um, and then, of course, that leads to issues like employment discrimination. And sometimes bosses can take advantage of that. If they know that somebody is gay, they can sometimes use that against you in the employment place, but also that they don't protect you when others are being homophobic or transphobic. That's why we need the policies and the laws in place um, so that we are dealing not just with issues of violence against women and girls, which is epidemic in our region, but that we're dealing with issues of universal human rights.
3: On a policy level, what
2: needs to change to give LGBTQI women uh, equal rights like everybody else? There's a lot of work to be done and we have the studies that show, you know, how you could do it. You have to make sure, though, that you're doing it in a way that is useful in a particular context, in a particular environment and in that set of laws. So the work that many feminist lawyers have been doing across the Pacific is looking at these issues because it's saying we have to look at universal human rights so that we are dealing with these issues as issues of human rights. You know, it's not just that, okay, LGBTQI people have a problem. But no, this is about making sure that we have equity and justice for all people within a society. So that's about people with disabilities. What if you're a lesbian and you are a woman with a disability? So there are what we call intersectional issues. What if you are a woman, or maybe a transgender person who is in a maritime environment? The issues that you deal with are not just about you being transgender; they're also about the reach of the state. How much does the, is the state able to protect you? What is the state of the police system and structures? If you look right now at how we're addressing these issues, we're going for the systemic change. Yes, we have to do the material sets of work. So, for instance, Diva for Equality, the organisation that I'm part of, we. We have hubs that are around the country, around Fiji, and those hubs are where LBTQ, um, so lesbian, bisexual, trans, uh, masculine people and gender non-binary people can meet. They generally meet about once a month. And they talk about the issues that are important to them. And they talk about something that might be, you know, happening in that context at that moment. It's not the same for someone living in Suva as for someone living in an outer island. So um, those, those issues of change have to be about the state recognizing that we claim those rights as human rights. Um, We're not asking for anything different from any other citizen. We're saying there is no right that you have in order to discriminate against us just because of our sexual orientation, gender identity, our gender expression, how we dress and how we are in the world, gender expression um, and sex characteristics. So as long as the laws continue to be old and archaic and not in keeping with all this work that we've done on human rights for decades now. Um, We've had 50 years since independence here in Fiji. So we should be able to make those systemic changes. It is about bodily autonomy. It's about the right of every person to make decisions for themselves over their body and having others not impinge on their rights. Being able to have a social contract that says you and I are equal. You and I live together in this country and this society. So, for instance, if you're a policeman or a policewoman and you have a particular view of people with diverse sexual orientation and gender identity, that is your right to hold that view, but in no way can your values influence the way that you deal with me. So when you come across me in your daily work life, we've gotta be speaking from a position of equals. And that's why Diva for Equality, Fiji Women's Crisis Center, um, many other organizations are working directly with police. We also work with people in corrections. We're doing a a major set of sessions on um, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression with every staff member from the Fiji University. Because we believe that you'll start to change the culture when people have the chance to, to meet and to talk with those like myself who are willing to answer questions, who are willing to talk through these issues, but also to stand really firm and say, we're not asking for something that is unreasonable. What we want is to make sure that we can live a happy life and a fulfill, fulfilling life just like anybody else does, um, regardless of our sexual orientation, gender identity and expression.
3: After hearing from Noelle Nombulolo it sounds like the solutions are already there. You're listening to Sisters
1: Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia.
3: One woman who has documented the intersections between gender, culture and tradition in a Pacific context is Tangi Kolowaki, who lives in Hawaii. Earlier this year, she blogged a memoir about her life as a queer Fijian Tongan woman. It started by recounting stories of a happy childhood surrounded by love and family. I wasn't
0: aware that there was really the options for gender and sexuality. For myself, I assumed that I was as heterosexual as what I thought uh, most people were, right? The norms. And being raised with options for difference, uh, being raised uh, around gay men in particular, feminine gay men, or what some people call third gender, Waxalawalawa, allowed me to uh, consider differently um, and so when I fell in love with a woman, uh, it surprised me because I, I assumed I was heterosexual, but I fell deeply in love and in lust. And, and because I was very much part of my family, I just just, I wanted to share that joy and that love with them, especially because it was a surprise. And I, I wasn't uh, aware that there were these potential and capacities for love like there is in queer love. So I was so excited, and I just wanted my family to know. So I did talk to my mom. I, you know, let people know in my family as much as I could. Yeah, I think at the time I was maybe sixteen or seventeen. I will also say though that these kinds of narratives of like coming out are very. Western uh, LGBTQ uh, narratives, and I point that out only because although they can be useful to us as Pacifica LGBTQ people, there is ways that mainstream LGBTQ there's ways that mainstream LGBTQ, ways that, uh, mainstream LGBTQ uh, narratives and ideas and political goals and priorities etc. Language there's ways that they can also be colonizing of queer Indigenous Pacifica ways of being in the world.
3: Is there a difference in experience compared, comparing uh, when you're home in Fiji and uh, living overseas?
0: Oh my God, yes. You know, I was think, I think about every time I fly home to Fiji and that sort of hour to half an hour. And as you sort of come into landing, seeing the Vanua, seeing home below us. And also the fact that there are usually other Fijian community going home on the plane with me. I can't even properly describe the sense of relief and love and belonging that floods through me. And that's not to say that home isn't hard as well, especially if you've been in the diaspora for a while. But, I mean, this is what it means to be an Indigenous person, right? A Pasifika person is is we are intimately, genealogically connected to the land and to communities of, of life and living. I feel that deeply every time I go home. And so what it means is that um, living abroad for a lot of my kind of young adult and later adult life, it has been really difficult. And often I've uh, suffered for it in terms of my health, my mental health and physical health. Sometimes it can be a really hostile experience because of anti-Indigenous racism, because of homophobia and transphobia, et cetera, um, because of all of the ways that those environments can be hostile. Um, so I've really found like, refuge with Indigenous people, uh, Black and Indigenous and um, people of color communities, queer communities on the continental U.S. and of course here in Hawaii.
3: Thank you for other queer Islander women listening, or maybe you know have these doubts about themselves, and uh, or maybe grappling with their sexuality. What would be your message? What would you say to them?
0: I'm so amazed at the, the power and the deep beauty of our Pacifica queer people. Their courage, their absolute creativity, their intelligences, their capacity for resilience, their capacity for love in spite of the damages of colonialism and Christianization, et cetera, et cetera, and also the overwhelming um, cultural and political presence of non-Indigenous LGBTQ uh, movements. So what I would say to other LGBTQ Pacifica out there is Believe in us. Yeah. Believe in you. Uh, remember that we come from a lineage of queer Indigenous ancestors whose stories and whose love and whose lives have enabled us to be who we are today. And I would say remember that our queer Indigenous Love, our desire, our capacity to break from colonialism and Christianization—the ways that they harm our capacity to be in our bodies, to love our love our bodies, to love ourselves, yeah. to experience the joys of queer desire, of queer pleasure, of queer uh, love and intimacy and families. Those things are our birthright, and those things are integral to survival, the
3: continued survival of our communities, including and especially queer Pacifica peoples. Both gay men and women. Beautiful and inspiring words by Tongan Fijian writer and researcher Tangi Kualuwaki, who has drawn on the courage of her queer aunties and uncles, as well as the spirit of her ancestors in order to be a proud queer Islander woman. Kalisito Biakula lives in Fiji.
1: My pronouns are she and they and identify as a Vakasaleolewa. In English, Vakasaleolewa is like more like a third gender. It's similar to trans. Vakasaleolewa was a dictatory term to call out queer people that you evil or wrong. because of colonization of few that has claimed, took ownership of that name, reclaiming the name you know, as a form of empowerment and resilience.
3: That's very powerful. Alasita, was there a point in your childhood when it became clear to yourself, at least, that you were Vakasa Lewa Lewa?
1: I think growing up, I knew that I was different. Like, I was so, I know that I was born in the wrong body, and I didn't come, you know, come to sense to it, that I didn't have to come out, into the fam- to come out like as a sister and a gay man, or to come out and say that I'm that I was I know, growing up, I know I was I was different. My mom, my mom, knew, uh, knew that I was way different, and often like gone through a lot of you know conversion therapy, like the way the Pacific way of conversion therapy was getting beaten up, getting beaten up by your family members or your relatives just to change me. I experienced that as a child, and because I'm the only, I think in like my entire Generation, entire three generation of my family, none of them were queer. Or in fact, it's saw a lot different. I was the only one when I came out. When I just, uh, they knew that was it for like the the loudest, the most ex. Yeah, I was everywhere. I was (laughs) like my my ancestors' wildest dream, being the most craziest, androgynous. Yeah, open. The conversion therapy that I had gone through was ever since I was like five going to six I was like oh, I went oh, five or six where if I wear my mom's sandals or touch her earring or put on lipstick my uncles and cousins would say like don't be a girl that's girl cool stuff like don't so get in the hygiene, and yeah it's five or six and my entire life I'm going through that till I moved to a city where I moved to the city in Suva where I had to live on my like independently Live on my own and the, the, the violence has ended, like the form of the abuse. Still, I still faced it, face it out in public. But as a trans, as a Leon, Leonera, I am visible enough for society to
3: pick on me. I'm so sorry that, that happened to you, Kalisito. You know, the, some in
1: the villages, they are not really severe, I would say that. There are only certain villages that are very LGBT accepting, and, like, and there are some who are very just like conservative. We also recognize that Fakasao play important roles. We play the kitchen maid. When there's a function, we do the cleaning, the decorating, the, the housekeeping. We do the cooking. We can, you know, become singers in the choir for the church on Sunday. From all the good things that we do, the only thing that we get picked on is our, the only thing overshadows our identity is who we sleep with and how who we we are. I think that's like the biggest reality that uh, Waka people and LGBT people in the Pacific have been like really facing. Waka are the LGBT community people based in the in the like villages or in the rural area, they don't have the same privileges as people in the city, like the access to uh, SRHR, sexual uh, health and rights, and some of the legal justice system. Whereas in the in the city. There is a rise in like, police brutality, act of violence, such as homophobia or transphobia, attack on the streets.
3: So in Fijian society today, are Vakasa lewa, lewa and trans still being attacked in the way you describe?
1: Fiji itself has like gone through a bit of like progress in terms of protection. So under the, constitution, the Fijian the 2013 Fiji constitution, we have a section uh, 26 that talks about protection of LGBT people from discrimination and stigma. But even though there's, we have a constitutional provision that protects us, the people who are supposed to implement the law are the ones who perpetrate it, such as uh, insects and frogs, who are often LGBT people are often persecuted like, through violence, through police brutality, you know, and they entertain it because of the because of colonization itself, that we were fair, but we existed, but when Christianity came to the Pacific, that wiped us
3: out in severe immoral or evil. And what kind of support do you think will really uplift your community? I think my biggest request, you no, know, we
1: like, like the biggest support we can urgently is like forms of like solidarity, like a person to listen you know, free of discrimination, free of biasness, having an open mind and having like very hard conversation. Because um, like, in the Pacific, we hardly talk about sex openly It's seen as a taboo topic for many generations. Usually it's out of arrogance or because of different Christian beliefs. I think that in the most important about you know, it's empathy not sympathy.
3: If people are listening now who they think might be or maybe their family is listening what would you tell them? I think one of my messages is like please love them through
1: all your heart do not disown them and uh, there are also resources available and such as organization that does marvelous work around uh, LGBT inclusion and so, so there's training we have some organization the organization they can reach out to. We have the Rainbow Pride Foundation. It's an LGBT organisation based in Samoa, and they're also on Facebook, and they also have a website. We also have Diva for Equality, another LGBT organisation, LBT organisation that works around climate justice and gender. Then we have the Fafafine Association, they're based in Samoa. We have the Tonga Lady Association. We have the House of Chameleon, and and you have the Utopia, uh, it's a trans-LGBT organisation based in Seattle, who work around uh, the, the third gender identity in the Pacific.
3: I can't help but feel inspired by Kalesito Biakula, who is proudly claiming the title Lewa, and it's not stopping until the rights of people like her are recognised and respected. Hearing Kalesito, Manavai, Tangi, and Shah speak about the beautiful ways they have owned their sexuality and genders and are creating a proud queer community was inspiring. It gives me hope that the Pacific can change for the better. As Noel Nambulivo said, the answers are already there because we all benefit from a more equal society. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Hilda Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia, a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is sistas at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, what is it like being the eldest sister in Pacific Island families?
4: The obligation of ensuring that um, that we
0: continue to connect in the Samoa and the Samoan language. The concept is Osi Ainga, meaning that as the eldest sister, I'm responsible for looking after my
3: extended Ainga. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented by me, Hilda Wayne. It's produced by Melissa Macon. Our supervising producer is Inge Stuntner. Executive producer is Justin Kelly. And our commissioning editor is Ilaria Walker. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol and next time.